I'm Evan Knappen, and welcome to Gun Lawyer. So, you know, we've been doing some really heavy shows lately because there's so much news and excitement from the impact of the Bruin case and then the new gun laws that are horrible being passed, and we've been talking all about these things, and, and it's important, and it's great to get the word out. But I have some really important letters and things that people have written to me, and we're going to get to that later on. But what I want to do right now, you know, as we're dealing with all this stuff, I want, I want to have some fun. You know, I like to have fun. I'm sure you do too. And I was thinking about some fun stuff because I was talking with some folks, and I was talking about what I call stupid kid stuff, stuff that we did as kids that was really stupid and Luckily, as kids, we were able to do it, and hopefully we all, you know, survived without getting maimed. But I have some stories I'm going to share with you about stupid kid stuff that I did. And then uh, if it inspires you about any of your stupid kid stuff, send me uh, letters. You know, go right to uh, Gun Lawyer website at uh, www.gun.lawyer and uh, let me know your stupid kid adventures. And I'd love to read them to folks because it's really uh, entertaining and looking back at it and saying, boy, you know, the kids today, they're so sheltered. They could they could never even do the things we did. I'd, matter of fact, if any of my kids try to do the things that I did, I would be really upset with them. But luckily, uh, in, in my generation, the stupid kid stuff that we did involved, well, Firearms, weapons, and the recreational use of explosives. That's always what inspired kids in my generation. And so I remember my pals, we, we all had air rifles and such, and we would go in the woods and you know, basically shoot anything that moved. And it was very, very entertaining. And it was uh, great times, really, a lot of fun. And you learn to shoot really well and it was uh, exciting, but then I'm looking back and thinking, you know, one time we had a single-barrel shotgun, and it was an old, like, old break-open single-barrel shotgun. And the problem is they have, you know, a floating firing pin where the hammer's on it. They didn't have a, you know, unless you cock the hammer back to the, to the half cock notch, you know, that hammer was on the pin, right? So I remember we were so stupid as kids. We used to put a shell in, and then we'd throw the shotgun, throw it, so that the barrel would land and hit the ground and make the gun fire. And when the gun fired, the shotgun would blast backwards like a rocket. And then the fun game we had as kids was try to grab the shotgun as it fired backwards when we were throwing it with live shells so it would go off. And I'm looking back thinking, I go, we were idiots. We were absolutely idiots doing stuff like that. But, hey, you know, when you're a kid, you don't think about that. You're indestructible. You know it. So you do stupid stuff. One of the other things I remember as a kid we used to do, I and mean, luckily the statute of limitation has long gone on all this stuff, we, we used to make pipe bombs for fun. I mean, I don't know. I, I We used to take... PVC, and it was so easy, you know, and you fill it with match heads. And we used to light these things off, and it was great. It was hilarity. You know, we thought it was the best thing ever. 
And so, you know, we didn't hurt anybody with it, except one time, well, we, we found something out. We figured, we found out a weird thing. And that is if you took an extension cord, one of the cheapos, and you cut the ends off and you, you could split it, you know, those kind with the two wire that you can split the old extension cord. And we found that if you took picture wire frame, wire that you was a picture wire stuff and you unwound it, had that real thin steel piece of wire and you wrapped it around each end of the extension cord. And then at the other end, we hooked the extension cord to our Lionel train transformer. And you'd crank that baby up, and the wire would turn bright orange. It would heat up bright freaking orange. So we got this great idea. We took our pipe bomb deals that we were making, and we wrapped the fuse around this thing, and we had the wire going all the way back, and, we're, and we made this little hole, and we put, like, a cardboard, and we put the pipe on, we had the wire coming, and on top of the hole, we covered a little bit of dirt and stuff, and then we put, like, peanuts and stuff where the squirrels would be. And we went all as kids. We hid behind the little fence, and we had the transformer already, waiting for the squirrel. We're all quiet. Finally, a little squirrel comes walking up. Oh, look, peanuts, right? So he's eating the nuts, sitting there, and we go, Zit! and we turn the transformer, and we're waiting. Well, suddenly... Little fizzles of smoke start seeping up from the ground, and suddenly, boom, boom. You could, there was nothing left. The squirrel was absolutely evaporated. And we're all cheering and screaming. It's the greatest thing I ever thought of was this. And I look back and go, we were idiots, just idiots doing this stuff. And can you imagine today what would happen to kids doing this? What would they be just, you know, juvie jail, the psychological treatment, you know, all, every kind of thing on the side. You know, it was just like, it's just a normal fun thing. Crazy kids is what we're doing. Oh, not anymore. Forget it. Forget it. I remember one time we had like a curtain rod and so I was just found in the trash, some curtain rod and put, drilled a hole toward the bottom and he'd shove the curtain rod into the ground, but the hole in the side of it was there. And then what we did was we you fed a firecracker through it. And then we dropped the marble from the top, so you'd light the firecracker, bang! And it would launch that marble out of sight. You never know where they landed. We never knew. I mean, it fired that thing. It just, it was gone. We don't know. I can't tell you how many marbles we shot out of with firecracker curtain rod tubes. And again, how stupid were we? And we look at this stuff, and I look back and go, holy cow, it is really Amazing that we survived, I, I guess, but that was our old generation. So I bet a lot of you have interesting stories as kids of fun things you did, and I'd love to hear about it because they are funny, and you look back and just shake your head. But, yeah, I remember one time where, uh, you know, kids are junk pickers. That's the other thing. It seems like adults don't realize you put it out in the junk, kids are going to find it, right? So there was a guy that did, at the time, one of the households into model um, airplanes that had the motors. And it was a stuff called Cox Fuel, C-O-X. And you would run the, the, the plane engine with it. And the, the wing, you had like two wires that came off the wing and you'd like stand in a circle and the plane would fly and you make it go up and down and up and down. And eventually they came up with remote control. But before the electronic remote control, you had these 
wires that controlled the plane off its wing. And it was Cox fuel, really super flammable, incredible stuff that ran those little motors on those planes, right? So one of the kids in my neighborhood going to the junk, there's an old can of Cox fuel that, and there was just enough still left in it for kids to mess with, and it was perfect. So we went into the woods where we had our fort, and we would play war in there and do all that great kid stuff that, again, totally politically incorrect today. But there was this little patch of area, and they, we took a, a one of those green plastic classic soldiers, you know, that you see like in Tour Story, one of the green, mean green soldiers, right? And put it down, and my buddy Chris is like, hey, let's pour this on it and light them on fire. Now, at that point, I'm like, you know, we're in the woods here, and fire, this is probably not cool. I mean, we do a lot of crazy stuff, but I don't know, this seemed just a little more dangerous than usual because I never, you know, so I'm standing way back. I'm standing way back. But one of the other kids there decided, no, he wanted to get a close-up of this one. So he's pretty close staring at it. And Chris is there, and he pours some, some of the fuel on, and he lights a match and lights this, and, oh, it's burning beautiful. The green guy's melting. It's awesome. But Chris decided that wasn't good enough, and he decided to pour more cox fuel on the flame. I'm standing back far enough. I see that spout of fuel hit the flame, and I see the fuel, like fire, go whoosh right back into that can and literally explodes the can in a giant boom. Now, luckily, there wasn't enough fuel in there that it just did a like a, a minor napalm coating, you know, all across the land. But the guy, Larry, who was standing close, who was kneeling down watching it, oh, my God, his hair, his eyebrows were burned off, his face was black. He looked like one of the cartoon characters after a cigar explodes in your face, okay? And there was fire all over the woods, of course, so we're running around trying to put that out. And the boom attracted neighbors' attention. I remember the neighbors, what's going on back there? What's going on? And I remember Chris yelling, oh, no, nothing. We, we, we found a fire. We're, we're putting it out. Uh, we, we found it. We're putting it out. And, and we're all stomping like mad to put this thing out. After we get it all put out, and uh, the interesting thing, that can, I guess, was made to explode. They were the square metal kind of cans it, it it actually opened to a flat like the handle and then the whole thing was open and flat when it just opened i guess designed to explode like that it was pretty cool but unfortunately larry was not in good shape i mean his, his he had a pretty bad sunburn i guess it was like like really bad sunburn across his face and he said no eyebrows and the front of his hair burned away and uh, blackened all over and we're like Oh, crap. He's got to go home looking like that. Oh, my God. So he did. He went home like that, and things kind of erupted around the neighborhood over that little uh, fiasco. But the stupid stuff we do as kids, oh, man, it is just bad. So I just want to uh, put this out there for you. I think you might find, uh, I'm sure I'll find some of your stories extremely entertaining, and I'd like to share them with our listeners. It's just a uh, fun thing to talk about here on Gun Lawyer. And uh, speaking of important things on gun lawyers, and I and because of all this craziness, 
I have gotten a lot of letters, and uh, I'm happy about that because I love reading these questions from folks. And I want to mention here, John uh, sends a letter regarding possession on boats. Hi, Evan. Love the show, and thank you for all you do. I've heard you speak about the exemptions and transporting firearms. With summer in full swing, I was wondering how it applies to boats. I've been told in the past that boats are treated like a house as far as possession is concerned. Is this, a, is this true? If so, does the size and style of boat matter? Just curious. Well, boats are not necessarily treated as a house. Now, if you're living on the boat and it is your actual residence, then we, we get into this argument and area because the exemptions say that a place of business has to be a fixed location. But it doesn't say that your residence has to be a fixed location. So that's interesting. And if it's a houseboat and if you're docked and you're living on your boat and it's actually docked, I think we have an argument there about residency if it's your bona fide residence. But remember, under New Jersey, having to prove that is on you. And I'm not sure. I've never had to push that in court, that specific issue. But if you're not actually living and it's not your bona fide residence, then boats are more akin to cars, a vehicle. And really what you're doing is you're transporting your firearm. And it doesn't matter if you're transporting it on a boat, if you're transporting it on a bicycle, or if you're transporting it in your car, or even on your person. The transport is regulated by exemption and the exemptions are the same. The exemptions are going essentially directly to the target range or going to your home from place of purchase or between your home and your place of business and or taking your guns, hunting, etc. And when you do this transport, the transport, the mode of transport is specific in New Jersey under subsection G of NGS 2C. 39.6, and it's a subsection G mode of transport. And that really doesn't change if you're on a boat or any other vehicle. Now, of course, if you're flying in a plane, if it's your own commercial plane, that's one thing, but if you're flying uh, by going to the airport and such, then there's special rules, of course, for how you're going to tr bring a firearm on the plane, and those rules are different from what I'm talking about here. But your general transport for vehicle or boat or even on your person, the mode of transport dictated by subsection G. So what is required by subsection G? Well, number one, that your firearm be unloaded. So that's the first thing, unloaded. Unloaded means nothing in the cylinder, nothing in the chamber, and I strongly advise nothing in the magazine at all. And if you're magazine's in the gun and it's loaded, you've got a problem, even if there's nothing in the chamber. But I would further advise, do not have loaded magazines preloaded, even with them not being in the gun. Now, I know the state police put on the website that you can preload your magazines going to the range. I, I know. But the problem is, if you get into a battle on that issue in court, the prosecutors say they're not bound by that, and it ends up where we go to the judge and I'm saying your, your gun's unloaded when even though your magazine was loaded and the prosecutor's saying your gun's loaded because the magazine's loaded and it's part of the gun. 
And ultimately, the judge says, well, okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's a jury question. That'll be a jury question. Well, isn't that great? Now, 12 people who aren't smart enough to avoid jury duty are going to decide whether your gun is loaded or not. You don't really want to be in that position, so don't load anything if you're transporting. Now, how do you transport? You transport unloaded, and if it's in a closed and fastened case, that's one way to be legal. If it's unloaded and in a gun box, that's a second way to be legal. If it's unloaded and in a securely wrapped package, that's the third way to be legal. And four is if it's unloaded and locked in the trunk of the vehicle. Now, I understand on a boat you don't have necessarily have a trunk in a vehicle, but you plainly can have your gun unloaded and cased. And if it's in a closed and fastened case and it's unloaded, you're in conformance of subsection G, and then your transport on the boat has to be to and within the exempted places of travel, going to the target range, going hunting, going from place of work to your to your home and back to these other places. So that's how it works for boat transport generally. And when we come back, we're going to get into some other really important letters. Talk to you in a few moments. For over 30 years, attorney Evan Knappen has seen what rotten laws do to good people. That's why he's dedicated his life to fighting for the rights of America's gun owners. A fearsome courtroom litigator fighting for rights, justice, and freedom. An unrelenting gun rights spokesman tearing away at anti-gun propaganda to expose the truth. Author of six best-selling books on gun rights, including Knappen on Gun Law, a bright orange gun law Bible that sits atop the desk of virtually every lawyer, police chief, firearms dealer, and savvy gun owner. That's what made Evan Knappen America's gun lawyer. Gun laws are designed to make you a criminal. Don't become the innocent victim of a vicious anti-gun legal system. This is the guy you want on your side. Keep his name and number in your wallet and hope you never have to use it. But if you live, work, or travel with a firearm, the deck is already stacked against you. You can find him on the web at evannappen.com or follow the link on the Gun Lawyer resource page. Evan Knappen, America's Gun Lawyer. You're listening to Gun Lawyer with attorney Evan Knappen. Available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I am a lawyer. I am a lawyer. Hey, welcome back to Gun Lawyer. And we are here spreading great information and having some fun while we do it and getting the word out and being able to talk freely and actually exercise our First Amendment rights in pursuit of our Second Amendment rights, something that the lamestream media does not want us to do. And I'm tired of uh, being uh, shadow banned and algorithmed out of existence, so this is our way to talk. So any, any of you folks that have others, tell them to listen to Gun Lawyer, subscribe. It's a platform to learn the information, learn the truth, learn about our rights and things you can do to both protect yourself and keep up the fight for liberty. So I have a letter here from William, 
And William asks regarding unserialized old 22s. Always great show, Evan. Since I would rather not have to pay you a retainer, can I simply scribe a number on the underside of the barrels located or covered by the stock on my pre-1960 22s to satisfy Murphy's insane new law? Maybe your phone's phone number I should put there just in case. All the best. Oh, I like that idea, inscribing my law office phone number there in case you have a problem. But actually, I uh, I would have to tell you that, unfortunately, this is not the answer. Um, it has to have a serial number put on by the original manufacturer. You putting a number on it does not count. It will not cut it. So if you possess any of those pre-68 unserialized guns, when the legislature, in its incredible wisdom, they failed to make provision for all the millions of NSN, no serial number guns, out there, and instead uh, it turned them into essentially a contraband where you face a second-degree potential charge carrying up to 10 years in state's prison for your previously lawfully acquired and possessed 22 or shotgun or handgun that was made before 1968 without serial numbers. And simply trying to put a serial number, even my phone number, which, by the way, is 732-389-8888. But anyway, I'll just shamelessly plug that. But uh, no, don't put my number on there. Don't put any number because it's not going to help anything. But uh, it is just more of the rushed-through, feel-good laws that do nothing about crime but turn law-abiding citizens into criminals. It is why New Jersey focuses on making victims from the gun laws, and I don't want to see any of you become a victim of New Jersey gun laws. So here's a letter from Colin. And Colin asks regarding transfer question. My father passed away, sadly, during lockdown madness. He lived with my mother on the West Coast. I'm in New Jersey. I'm not a prohibited purchaser. Would an unregistered shotgun be transferable through an FFL, or would it trigger a legal firestorm causing problems? Thanks for everything you do. Sincerely, Colin. Okay, here's the deal, Colin. In order for you to get your late uh, father's gun, if you inherited the firearm, and if you're the beneficiary, so you didn't say whether your mother is still with us or not, but if you were the heir, then that gun passes to you without any paper, any registration, any problem under Jersey and under federal law. It's no problem. As long as you're the heir, you can take that gun in that manner. But if you're not the heir, if the estate actually went to your mom, but mom wants you to have the gun, which is fine, that needs to go through a dealer. So needs to get a dealer in the West Coast to send it to a dealer where you live, which would be New Jersey, I'm assuming from this, and then you could then acquire it using your firearm purchaser ID card from the dealer in Jersey. That's because you're not a resident of this West Coast state. And under federal law, firearms can only transfer resident to resident unless it goes through uh, I mean, from a not from a resident in a resident state, unless it goes through 
a federal firearms dealer? So the answer is go through the firearms dealer. And then you can take possession of the shotgun lawfully. It will not cause, quote, a firestorm. It happens all the time. Uh, dealers from one state ship firearms to dealers of other states so that the recipient dealer can lawfully transfer the firearm to that resident in that state. And that's the proper way to do it. And I uh, wish you luck on uh, getting your late father's uh, shotgun, which I'm sure you'll treasure and have as a very uh, sentimental memory. And I've also had a follow-up question to the inheritance of firearms. You know, New Jersey under Murphy ended the private sale. So there are narrow exemptions, though, and the narrow exemptions allow for a private transfer between immediate family members. So while members are alive, family members, you're able to transfer firearms to other family members that are direct family members, such as uh, father to son or grandfather to grandson or granddaughter or grandma to granddaughter. I'm not being sexist, but there's the immediate family exemption, but it still requires the pistol purchase permit on handguns and firearm purchaser ID card with certificate of eligibility on long arms. The only difference is you don't have to go through a dealer. Anybody else in New Jersey, within the state, if it's not by exemption because of immediate family member, not only needs all the proper permits and forms, but it must go through a dealer. So that's the difference. Jer uh, Jersey used to have private sale as long as you had permits and it was not restricted. Individuals with permits could transfer or be transferred to firearms and everyone did the paperwork and that was fine. But Murphy ended that, so now everyone has to go through a dealer so that there's an additional NICS check done, which is absolutely useless because you just spent to get printed and your background check and have all that done just to get the permit. So why are you getting a NICS check when you've all, it's, it's just absolute redundancy to cause more of a burden and more of a problem on our Second Amendment rights to put every kind of barrier and burden they can come up with to just make it harder and harder, even though it has nothing to do with crime, but it's all about screwing us out of our Second Amendment rights, our ability to lawfully enjoy firearms, and you see it expressed every day by these idiotic laws. But even though I've said that, I don't want to see you become a victim because New Jersey loves its idiotic gun laws. And New Jersey makes the penalties felony level so that if you ignore them, you end up losing your gun rights for the entire United States. So make sure you follow the law and don't jam yourself up as frustrating and absurd as they are. Here's a letter from Jeremy who says, Regarding concealed carry in a motor vehicle in New Jersey. Hi, Evan. Does the change to the CCP affect the requirement for transport in a motor vehicle? Love the show and thank you for the valuable information. Actually, it does. If you get your New Jersey permit to carry a handgun, then that is the exemption for your possession of a handgun. 
and you do not have to carry it unloaded. You do not have to transport it in the one of the four methods we talked about pursuant to subsection G because you are no longer reliant on the exemptions because you now have a carry permit, which is the part of the statute itself that has to do with the possessory charge. And if you have the license, it becomes exempted on that possession. You don't have to reach back to exemptions. So the answer is it does dramatically affect it, which is why every gun owner in New Jersey, if you're interested in just shooting your handguns, going to the range and shooting, really should have a carry permit because it takes away the need for you to rely upon narrow exemptions and all these uh, various requirements to make sure that it's uh, transported pursuant to these narrowly construed exemptions. The permit takes you outside exemptions. Now, what a lot of folks do will get a permit to carry and stay within the exemptions as well, which is not a bad plan, considering it's New Jersey. It's kind of like belt and suspenders. So it is advisable, but it's not mandatory if you have the license. And so it's a good question there, Jeremy, but that is the answer. And by the way, there is no obligation to reveal to the officer if you're pulled over that you have a firearm on your person or otherwise. New Jersey does not require revealing that. So it's not required. Now, that being said, it might be advisable if you're lawfully carrying a handgun to let the officer know so they don't get scared and shoot you. So maybe you might think about that under the circumstances. But as far as legally, you do not have to say a word. Uh, I have a questionnaire from Ivan. Ivan says, Evan, I just listened to your podcast. Thanks for putting these out as they are so informative. Regarding the New Jersey firearm ID card you talk about and how new applicants will be stuck following all these new rules and will have a card that expired but that having existing cards are not subject to this rules. Question, comment. What happens to the existing card holders that move within New Jersey and file for a new card with address change? Are those cards subject to the new rules? And the answer is no. If you have a card, an old card, and you have the obligation, of course, to put in your change of address, the law does say you're not required to do the training. It's only the newbies that get cards and permits after July 5th of this year. That's when the law took effect. Uh, so the rest of us are grandfathered, and the training is not required even on the change of address deal or new permits. That's what the law says. So uh, you don't have to worry if you're already a holder of the card. But even if you don't have to worry, it doesn't mean you should be in favor of this. And let me just say, I, I appreciate training. I believe in training. I completely support firearm training and knowledge and safe handling, and that is all good stuff. What I don't support is when you make it mandatory. And you may say, why? And I'll tell you why. Because the problem is it becomes a tool to stop the individual from exercising their rights, from getting a gun. It's not sincere that they really want people trained. I don't buy that for a minute. It's about putting another barrier to stop people from having their guns, and that's what it's all about. What can they get away with and still appear to be so righteous and so concerned? And that's this. And so here I'm afraid 
that the training requirements, which have not yet even been promulgated, we're going to see them, and maybe at first they'll even be reasonable, but I can assure you they will grow and grow and become as unreasonable as they can get away with mandating. And this is all part of their agenda, part of their game. Why are we to believe that suddenly New Jersey is going to be reasonable in its application of gun laws when it has never been in its entire existence? So give me a break. That's the problem, but you need to be aware of it and make sure that your rights, freedom, and liberty stay protected. This is Evan Knappen reminding you that gun laws do not protect honest citizens criminals. They protect criminals from honest citizens. Gun Lawyer is a Counterthink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Reach us by emailing evan at gun.lawyer. The information and opinions in this broadcast do not constitute legal advice. Consult a licensed attorney in your state.